Perfect Person Podcast, episode 77. This is going to be a slight departure from what we usually offer because I'm interviewing Dave Morris. So without further ado, here we go. Well, uh, I'm very pleased to welcome Dave Morris back to the podcast. And he's agreed to talk about a number of things, which are a pre-prepared list. Thank you for coming along, Dave. How are you doing? Very well, thank you, Ralph. And thanks for inviting me on. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, (laughs) All right. Um, the main thing I wanted to talk to you about was, um, well, a bit of politics, really. Uh-huh. Mostly because I mean, you wrote this some time ago, and I've actually got the draft that you sent to me on my desktop right here. Um, the Can You Brexit Without Breaking Britain um, <laughs> game book, uh-huh. which um, I'm, that that must have come out, what, a couple of years ago now? Yeah. Right? Yes. In fact, um, when I'd finished it, I sort of tried to hurry it along because um, my agent was saying, look, we've got to get this out to publishers. And even then, the publishers, I think this was, would that be the end of 2017 probably? And the publishers all said, fantastic, we'll get back to you. And then they all had their publishing committees and they came back and said, oh, it might be all over by the time we get the book out. So I self-published it. And then I think nearly a year later, some of those publishers came back and said, oh, it still isn't done. We should have published it after all. So there we go. Yeah, it, I, I guess um, it's a tricky thing to, to feel that you're capitalising out of what is basically a, a fairly miserable situation. Uh, but um, Well, it was anger above all that motivated me to write it. Well, so, why, why, don't, why don't we talk about that? Then? Mm-hmm. Because I, I sort of I wanted to ask you how it started. Um, I mean, it's fairly obvious how some of it started, but mm. um, I think it was just a about- blindly stupid attempt to keep the Tory party together, wasn't it? That's how it all started. Oh well, if we're, yeah. if, we're talk- if we're talking about why why the <laughs> referendum happened, um, I think that's fairly obvious. Mm-hmm. But it's more your personal. Experience. Yeah, yeah. No, I realise. Yeah, um, you use this to exercise some sort of um, anger that you had. Well, it was, you know, after the vote, I found I was spending a lot of time arguing with people in real life and on way too much time on social media. And like a lot of people, you know, I think I'd I'd got a little bit informed about it, but I'd largely made my decision, which I don't think is any mystery to anybody, um, before before the referendum on emotional issues or, you know, a, a feeling of internationalism and, you know, progress and all that kind of stuff. And... Afterwards, it was clear that it's an extremely complex set of issues. And I thought, well, I should try and get more informed. So I'd started to to try to, you know, really be, mainly to be able to argue the points. Um, and then I guess partly it was because, I, you know, you've got the Article 50 thing. And I guess it just flitted through my head that you've got in game books the kind of turn to 50 or whatever idea. And I, I think those two bits came together. And I I remember thinking somebody should do a game book. It's It would be a good way to to get all this information across. Because uh, I'm a big uh, believer in people understanding something by getting their hands on it, you know, to actually, because you can, you can talk about a subject in theory for hours, but if you actually say, now implement it, you start to see, oh, it's not as simple as I thought. There are there are other knock-on effects. So a game seemed a good way to do that. And um, and I guess I spent, you know, a month thinking somebody should write that. And then it dawned on me that there wasn't going to be anybody else who would write it. 
Um, and then I remember actually sitting there, trying, still trying not to write the book. Um, and I, I got a, the back of an envelope and I thought, now one of the big problems with a book like this is there are going to be a number of, of, uh, of topics that you have to cover, like, uh, you know, the, the uh, trade deals and immigration and residency issues and, and mutual security and defense and all of those things. And some of these would happen in a, in, or could happen at different chronological points, because I knew that the structure of the book had to be time dependent. So I was thinking, well, something like planning your negotiating strategy, you're not going to be doing that two years into the into the uh, sort of negotiating period, but you may very well decide to tackle things like Britain's budgetary com uh, contribution for the rest of its outstanding membership period or or immigration issues. You might deal with those at any point. So I thought, well, I need some way that if you're going to devote a big chunk of, you know, there'd be chunks of the book that would be devoted to, say, immigration, and that needed to be able to come at any point. So I needed a game book structure that could remember the, how far through the book you were. So I, I sketched on the back of an envelope the concept of a, a time counter that would keep track of where you were and could route you back to the time period you'd reached through the book. And and then I pushed that envelope under some papers thinking, now I've solved that problem, I can forget about this book. And And then putting a cup of tea down, I think I pulled the envelope out again and decided... I'm going to have to write the book after all. So finally gave in and did it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that, that pacing mechanic, um, that is, if I remember from my, my couple of play playthroughs I did, um, it, you, you have a number of tick boxes, is that correct? Yeah. Uh, and, and, the, and then you, you, you have a central hub yes. of, of decisions that you have to tackle and you tick off, and then I think you go to the next level after that. Yeah, the, the, and, the, yeah. the, the tick boxes, are the, I actually called it turn counter for most of the book, and um, you'd come back to that, and if if you'd just reached the end of one of the periods, there were four period, main six-month periods in the, in the interim um, sort of negotiation period, um, but I should say, by the way, for anyone who hasn't seen the book, you're, you're the prime minister basically in this process. So at, at the end of each six-month period, as you're going back to the turn counter, it tells you to tick one of the boxes, but you're not told to do that at any other point. So it basically, it remembers then. Every time you come back to turn counter, it says how many boxes are ticked, and that tells you tells the book where you are. This is kind of interesting because I remember years ago, one of my programmers at IDOS was looking at one of my game books and said, it's just a mystery to me that you're trying to get paper and ink to do what any computer could do <laughs> perfectly well. Uh, but there's a certain delight in, in you know, coming up with a, a system like that to handle it. So uh, it means that in each of those six-month periods, I could put a list of the topics you have a choice to deal with in front of you. And some of them would drop out that are that were time dependent, but some would continue to occur until you'd actually dealt with them right up to the final six month period. And the turn counter was able to account for that. Yeah, I think I mean, that that's an interesting comment that particularly with the linkage to computer games where you have four distinct ages that you're going through. And I think that mm -hmm. might be a, um, you know, you, you say you do any role playing game where you have a seasonality 
mm-hmm. of of what happens, you're going to want to give players a the freedom to work within a sandbox uh, for a period of time, and then once they've come to the main conclusion, the next step will probably move on or expand horizons, and you're playing in a different bounded area. Um, and, and I think it it, do, it is perfectly logical to me that you would do it that way. It probably reflects how I plan a role-playing game as well, in that um, I tend to just come up with a bunch of threads and I've got them ready and I wait to see where the players will choose to go and then those are the things we develop as we're playing. But So I don't really have a pre- usually a preconceived idea of what kind of route or even what direction the, the, the adventure will take. You know, if, I, if they got to a town, I'd throw in... 20 leads and see, you know, there are different stories happening. Let's see where we go. So it's a similar thing, I guess. I, uh, that's, that uh, makes a lot of sense. I, mean, I've, um, I think in that case, you've got to be prepared to just have good ideas that you then abandon because they're not going to go anywhere with the playground. Yeah, yeah. Or, I, I like, I'm sure writing is just like that as well. Yeah, I kill your darlings and it's even right. hard. I was, well, is it harder? It's easier if the players kill the darlings. I mean, I even when I, like the other night, we because we were playing a quite a focused little game and I'd come up with a, not unusually for me, a quite a structured storyline and they deviated from it 95% anyway. So, and, uh, and I, you know, that's kind of like, that's interesting because you think of all these things that this will be cool if this happens. And then a completely different cool thing has to be made up on the spot because they didn't well, go. So that, that's, that's the phrase, no scenario survives first <laughs> yeah. contact with the players. Exactly. Yeah. Which yeah, I, yeah. I love that because, you know, as you say, if you're writing, it, it's a bit harder when you're writing because it can take quite a while for you to recognize what project, what parts of a project you should junk and what, or even in the, like, as I was saying with the Brexit book, even fighting with my imp of the perverse as to whether I should write it at all. Those processes you have to work out yourself, but when you've got a group of players, you know, they, they just take it where it's going to go. And it's amusing. It's interesting to, to watch that happen. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, uh, I'm going to bring it back to yeah. um, the book because I've actually got my Brexit memo pad in front of me. Ah, this is okay. one of the things you sent out, and I think it's pretty much unchanged from the version I played. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm just looking at the pad. So you've got four uh, four basic stats, all starting at 52%, mm-hmm. uh, which are your authority, economy, goodwill, and popularity. And, and those just basically you'll gain or lose those depending on your decisions, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then I see you've got a bunch of completed negotiations to tick off, which are going to be phased in that way you described. Yes. But then you've got a whole load of keywords. Yeah. And and so I'd like to ask you, you've got a, a running from A to Z, uh-huh. which includes um, Hemlock. I particularly like that one. And uh, what's the other one? Opal. Yeah, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got a bunch of these. Oh, Dodo. You've got a bunch of these keywords that uh, you tick off during the game. So could you uh, clarify what what that, those did? Yes. They, I, you see, I could have done the turn counter that way as well, but it would have meant the player can first of all i didn't want too many keywords it's you know it's a lot to remember 
to, to keep checking that you've ticked them. And also because I would have had to have erasing keywords potentially, which I didn't want to do, you know, because in some game books, if you're, if you think that the player, like the player in our fabled lands books is probably a hardcore, hardish core gamer, they won't mind being told things like erase this keyword and put this other keyword instead. But I had to figure the average person playing this might have played one fighting fantasy book back in the eighties or something. So I wanted to minimize those, but yes, so the point of them would be something like, I can't remember exactly what they are offhand, but let's say you tick nylon. That would mean you'd got an agreement to defer the budgetary contribution discussions until the fourth um, period. Or, uh, uh, for example, if you've decided to um, leave the single market, there's one of those keywords as a reminder that that decision has been made because it will have a knock-on effect on things like border control and tariffs in other areas. So it's just uh, a way of flagging, a logic flag effectively, that throughout the book that a decision has been taken one way or the other. Yeah, so your your decision process, or I'm sorry, the design process, that must have had a number of, um, well, a, a fairly complex flow diagram you've got there. Yeah. Which you've then reduced down to um, exchange of keywords. And... That was interesting also because the, the the very free structure meant that you might get different results depending on which order you did things in, which meant I had to have a massive spreadsheet with um, differently linked routes to doing different things. So I could actually work out what your maximum and minimum likely scores would be at various points because that could affect, for example, one of the things you can try and do is have a, um, a a leadership uh, contest in the in the Tory party and um, hold a general election. And that would depend on what your authority and popularity are at that point in the book, which of course could occur at several different points and would vary according to what you'd already done. So that did make it quite a bit trickier than... I mean, it... Normally, I, back in the day, I'd write a game book in a couple of months, and this one took uh, about a year, I think, overall. Um, partly because there's all the research to be done. I had to get uh, massive House of Lords committee reports on different aspects of, uh, and London School of Economics projections and things like that. And I ended up with hundreds of pages on each topic that I had to cram into my head and it you know it's a head that holds some things better than others and it turned out that politics and economics are not well stored <laughs> in my head I think so then I'd have to write that section before I forgot it all and and of course also try and make that section entertaining as well as informative which uh, was an additional to to really make something clear and and f- and entertaining you have to thoroughly understand it so that's probably why I was probably spending a month on each of those sections. So whereas before it might have been a month to write 200 paragraphs of a typical game book, here it's more like a month to write 50. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, it sounds like I'm not sure anyone's done anything like this. Uh, certainly, well, I can think of one other example 
which is uh, you are Mad- you are Maggie Thatcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a graphic novel game book. I've I've got it somewhere on the shelf downstairs. I've heard of it. I haven't seen it, but but that was very much sort of spitting image era caricaturing of the various uh, of the various people in um, Thatcher's cabinet, like you know Norman Tebbit and, and various other people. Um, but this, I don't think anyone's done something like this. No, and I. I hope for their sake they haven't, Um, (laughs) because my wife did point out when the publishers all said, oh, it's a a very depressing subject and there isn't really time. And she said, you could have spent one month, done a joke book on Brexit and the publishers would have been happy. That's all they really wanted. So, yeah, yeah, a book chooses you, really. You know, I, I... I, I wouldn't necessarily, if I could go back and tell myself how much work it would be, I think I'd probably add, you know, I'd be saying, I don't know if you want to spend a year doing that, but uh, I'm glad it's written anyway. Yeah. I, I think as a thing and as a product of the time, it it does kind of resonate with me given what was happening. You know, I could say, oh yeah, I was there and um, I'm being particularly interested in games. Mm. I wanted to pick up on one of the things that you uh, you said earlier, which is, you know, you obviously had to make it entertaining. And it is, the way we just talked about it, it does sound kind of dry. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think it's anything but. Um, you've got a lot of caricatures of different um, different members of the cabinet. I mean, first of all, is, is the PM actually uh, Theresa May? Well, it's never stated, but I think it the hint, I mean, it's certainly, there are enough... Um, little references, like I think at one point it mentions a childhood in a, a rectory or something like that. There are enough little hints that you think, well, it's got to be Theresa May, but it never says outright um, who it is. Yeah. And you've got, um, I, I think you've probably got Johnson there. Yes. Uh, in fact, I think he even can become the leader of the party in one of the options. Um oh. Yeah. What a horrifying prospect. It was, as I was writing it. Of course, most of the, um, yeah, I, I, there was, I think there was a German guy on, on one of the forums who went through all the names in the book, explaining to other non-English speakers what, why those names worked as puns or references to the main characters, which was very impressive because uh, I'd forgotten most of them. But, yeah, as to the... Um, the entertaining aspect uh that's really because jamie helped jamie thompson helped me with the book Mm. as well and his main contribution was to to come up with the in the development stage to come up with the the style of the book because i had in mind something probably that would have been a lot darker and weirder and it was it was kind of like a the master and margarita type of approach you know surreal and strange and Jamie made it more of a kind of the thick of it, you know, a kind of Armando Iannucci, uh, yeah. entertaining and political. And and I think that was he was quite right. Mine would have been really too obscure and possibly too depressing <laughs> as well. It was it was a it would it, w- it would have been an att- attempt to represent a country going mad, really. And he, you know, he and also because he was quite right that whatever our personal political views, we had to present a fair game, you know, that, that you could, yeah. if you are a Brexiter, I mean, admittedly, I thought 
only the maddest person would aim for an ultra-hard Brexit in the book. But here we are. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, we can we can discuss the reasons for that in real life. But I think it's it is perfectly reasonable to have um, utter a, 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 com- a completely apocalyptic failure conditions just for amusement's sake. Mm-hmm. It's just unfortunate that, that that's actually a bit close to home. Yeah, I mean, you could even win the book with a ultra hard Brexit. You get. It damages the economy terribly, but you get a massive authority. And as long as your popularity is high enough, you can continue to keep a country together with 35 40% popularity and a, and a strong hold on the party. And I wonder if Boris Johnson has actually played the book, come to think of it, you know, because hmm. it would explain a lot. Um, well, because, you know, immediately after the vote, I was thinking, well, I, I didn't, it was undefined as to what they were going to do. And clearly, Whereas you or I might think before doing something like that, we should consider all the possible outcomes. I mean, clearly, David Cameron was busy doing something else and hadn't thought about any of those things. But um, if you are going to have a referendum and then say, OK, that's a barometer of the opinion in the country, then 5248 should be, wow, if we did a show of hands in a room, we'd have to call for a count. And then we'd have to do a recount because we wouldn't be sure because it's so close. So clearly, the the outcome that would have had any integrity, if you're going to implement that, uh, you know, regardless of your representat- representative democracy, the only uh, reasonable way to implement it would have been to say, well, the country looks like it wants Brexit on a Norway type model. It's a it's a very s- soft Brexit, fifty two forty eight. But of course, and it was clear even as I was writing the book that that isn't the game. The game is at no point in the in Can You Brexit is the game, how do you run this country with integrity, responsibility and competence? It's how do you maintain control of the party? And so we've ended up where we are because Boris Johnson right, gets to run the party by appealing to about 50,000 fairly elderly nitwits, um, half of whom are probably certifiable. And that's the people he has to appeal to. So he's ended up with a ridiculously extreme version of Brexit because it plays to the crowd. That's yeah. where we are. On, you, on, on the, the next thing I was going to say is on, on the subject of winning, uh, it's not the country that's won. Yeah, the winning conditions no. are entirely for the PM yeah. personally. Yes. And, and, uh, and I think there's a lesson there. And, and I wanted to... Um, bring this back to the sort of the tone and you mentioned the thick of it which i adore and also the other touchstone we have is yes minister Mm -hmm. but the specific thing about those and the thing that makes the book entertaining is it has a bunch of characters some of whom you you might like some of whom you might loathe but it's the whole point about their trials and what they do and the the way they screw up Mm mm-hmm um, the interesting thing about the thick of it, of course, is it's it's all the people on the periphery, uh, very much that the mis- ministers and possibly the PM just get beaten up all the time. Yeah. Uh, but in, in this case, what we've got, uh, you know, you're, I got the sense that the PM is pretty much a punching bag for a lot of this. I'm sure Theresa May felt exactly that way. Um, uh, yeah. It. I think what was interesting was that Jamie's point about the, making it entertaining, it's 
he was pointing out that I enjoy politics, you know, black comedy politics, as it were. So the death of Stalin or something like that seems to be a very good way to tell the truth about Stalin's Soviet Union or or um, Nabokov's Ben Sinister, which is a very, 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 very dark comedy. But it is a comedy. It's the it's the ineptitude and selfishness. Take or Nostromo, for example, which is a very political book, but you can't avoid the absurdity built into it. Um, and though, so you know that was it was kind of odd that I didn't see, despite liking those things, that I didn't see that was the that was the the direction to take it. And uh, and you know Jamie saw it right away, but. I think you know. We also another thing that I like as well as thick of it is uh, Veep, which is you know a uh, different approach. But there you are, right in the middle. Uh, well, are you? I mean, she never she never gets f- for the first four seasons. I think she doesn't even see inside the Oval Office. But um, it's another fun way to you know to 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 reveal truth but without it becoming too depressing. Mm. I wanted to ask you. Um, a bit about uh, you mentioned the play testing earlier, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know we just we just talked about the sort of the, the the tone, the creative process. But then you mentioned the play testing. Of course, I um, you gave me a copy and I slacked <laughs> off reading it because I'd had a I had um, an infant at that time and I had no sleep. That's so. a perfectly good excuse. Yeah, I thought so. Um, <laughs> but but you mentioned so you got quite a big group of people. Then did you? I, to, yeah, uh, I got. To play test? Um, a bunch of guys. I I should have put. The, I was going to list them at the start, and it was one of those cases where how long is this book going to take to start with quotes and all the rest of it? But uh, uh, Matt Kelland and Gavin Orpin, a bunch of other guys as well, um, played through it a couple of times, and they would there would be logic flaws, like um, you know you we couldn't get to a certain paragraph because we couldn't have got to the condition required to unlock it and I had to reverse or so the things like the keywords that you've mentioned that they they had gone through it pretty exhaustively and uh, uh, that was really good because I had maybe eight guys play it and and of course one great advantage of self-publishing was people have actually given me feedback since so little flaws I can correct I have I'm not getting any more now so people have either stopped reading it or all the flaws have been caught. But um, that's one thing which I couldn't have done if it had been, you know, 30,000 copies from a publisher or whatever. I would have been happy to have the 30,000 copies published with flaws and everything. But, yeah. Has it um, mostly been electronic distribution then or hard copies? No, I think 50-50, roughly. Uh, There's a free PDF version online, uh, which I wanted to put out there just because I thought, well, having done all the work, it's it's a public service as much as anything, you know. Yeah. And um, and there's a Kindle version, but uh, no, nonetheless, some people do. I think old school game bookers are very. Uh, they're like vinyl record collectors. They they like their print. Uh, yeah, quite right. I mean, it is not the same um, as uh, you know ha- having an electronic version. I played mm. the Kindle version, which was okay. But it's not the same as the tactility of flipping through um, hmm. a book. And ticking oh, the boxes. That kind of yeah, thing. sorry, go ahead. No, it's just, you know, having got all the little boxes, it's kind of fun to tick them, to actually yeah. tick them, yeah. And there is this, um, and you talked about hardcore gamers destroying their books. There is now this, this um, uh, the, the 
pandemic legacy is a thing where you actually destroy yeah. your in-game tokens, yeah. uh, which you know ruins the replay value or ruins the thing for replay, which is an interesting approach to it as well. I know, and I, I, I mean, I'm a little bit obsessive about when I, you know, when I was a kid, I'd. I'd sometimes have to buy two copies of my favorite comics because one copy might get just too battered. If I was going to take it to school, then I had to have a pristine copy, you know. Um, and that's crazy because really playing a game, it's like uh, making a mandala, you know. The, the point of it is, make, is, make, is taking part, not to have a thing to hide, you know, or to show off. So... You know, I know a lot of people will say, oh, I'm not going to be playing uh, your new game books. I don't have time, but I have to have a complete collection. So I'm going to buy them anyway. And I, by the way, God bless them for doing that. But I don't (laughs) see the sense in in not actually opening the thing and getting on with it. Or, uh, you know, that the main point is is to do it, not to have it. Yeah, I've. Um, I mean, you made an earlier comment about how interacting with someone from IDOS uh, and saying mm-hmm. that you know you're trying to do the thing that a game that a a computer game does much better and more effectively. Except I'm not convinced it does. And certainly from the the time when I first got into game books uh, in the eighties, uh, there was nothing like that, and they're portable, uh, which you know your your computer is. Even if it was on a phone, it's a different kind of portability now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've I've got the um, Steve Jackson Sorcery, the adaptations for um, for that on my uh, my iOS device. It's not the same. Well, uh, to be fair, Inkle weren't trying to do this, and I think they're quite right. Yeah, it's not. It's a different medium, and it needs a different approach. And if I'm going to try. Th- something like that in reverse maybe this year when I'm going to take my Frankenstein app and turn it into a print game book. But that's going to be quite tricky because there's massive amounts of conditional text that are logic flagged that you get to read because of different earlier decisions. And clearly I can't do any of that in or very little of that in print. Uh, and anything I do becomes obtrusive because I have to ask the player if they have tick to condition or whatever, whereas the app does it for you. So I'm really going to have to think, what, what's the way to do this? It's an adaptation rather than a re, than simply a porting across. Yeah. So Frankenstein, I'm sort of, do you want to tell the listeners a bit more about that? Yeah, that was uh, about, oh, about eight years ago now. And I'd been, from time to time, my agent would come along and say, a publisher wants to talk about game books. And it would always be somebody who said, I remember game books. Is there anything we can do? And and I'd said, well, I guess we could do um, literary stuff. We, you know, take a, take a book that people actually know and let them get inside it. And um, we picked Frankenstein. And um, I we're back to politics because I like particularly the the earlier, you know, there are two versions of Frankenstein, the one that Mary Shelley wrote when she was uh, about 18 or 19 and the one she wrote in her 30s. And the later one is much more conservative and staid, I think. And the first one is still um, full of idealism. And um, 
And also it seemed to me that there was, well, there were massive gaps in the book because of course when she wrote it, she was very young. And whenever she reached a gap, she just put in a bit of her travelogue diary, basically. So there would be chunks of, you know, we went up this river and then and then we got to Turkey and then they went to the Arctic. And you think, well, I can't get away with that in a game book. We've got to see how they get to Turkey. What happens in Turkey? How do you go from Turkey to the Arctic? What do you do on the way? And also, when did it happen? Because in the book, she doesn't really, you know, she has Frankenstein at uh, Ingolstadt, uh, but we don't know when that is really. And and I thought time-wise, it would be great if it happened at the time of the French Revolution and that this is a time of fantastic idealism. So the monster that is created, you know, originally it's it's going to be something amazing. It's an, it's an angel that's being built. And then as the terror comes on, you get the monster's crusade of vengeance against its creator. Um, and so I moved the uh, university to Paris so I could have Victor right in the middle of the, the revolution and have the monster learning human nature from what it's observing at the time of the revolution as well. So the, the family he spies on are uh, uh, clearly a kind of uh, Russo uh, following um, educated elite family who've been kicked out of or fled from Paris and still believe in the perfectibility of man. And they're, they're on one side sort of they were pro the revolution, but it's gone out of control into this populist inferno of destruction and blame. And, um, and that's how he's learning about human nature. So it let me do uh, a retake, as it were. Um, funnily enough, a lot of people said, how dare you meddle with the book? But every time somebody makes a movie, they do that, you know. And um, there are a couple of points, by the way, where I had to fix plot mistakes that Mary Shelley had made. So uh, that's kind of, you know, I'm glad to have done that for her um, all these years later. But anyway, so it's a, it, I think it's an interesting, I wouldn't say you should substitute it for reading the novel that I would always recommend. And in fact, the app includes the 1818 version of the novel. It might even have both uh -huh. versions at the back. So you can, I say at the back, you know, it's there anyway. And so you can read that before or after playing the book. I'm honestly not sure which version I've read most recently. Uh, the easiest way to tell the difference is whether Elizabeth is uh, his is Victor's cousin or an adopted uh, sort of sister that has been brought up, but it is no relation of his at all. Uh, mm. uh, but it, the main difference, I suppose, is there's a kind of revolutionary zeal in the first one, and it's it's much more a kind of caution. You know, she's. She's a middle-aged mum by the time of the second one and, and that um, racy past has long gone and she's probably got sick of people asking her about Percy. And so it's all kind of like a, a little bit more. So she's gone, I wouldn't say she'd gone Boris Johnson, but she'd gone to the left of the Tory party, I think, by the time, if there is still a left of the Tory party. I'd... Oh, that sounds great. I'll, I'll um, stick a note to that in the show notes. Then. Okay. Um, yeah. That is... Uh... Okay, I mean, politics and games then. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, obviously I gave you a sort of a, a pre-prepared list of topics, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, do you, um, 
do you put politics in games generally? Is is that something that you would normally do, or would you go away from that? Well, I was about to say I would never. I don't think into a role playing game because things emerge, but I don't ever set out to sort of, you know, nanny the players in a certain direction, and and also because I think, um, I mean, I definitely put find politics coming into the things like game books or my comic book Mirabilis has a political feel because how can you express your stories without your politics coming across, you know, in the personal at any rate. Um, so that, and that's also because in Mirabilis it's set in, uh, at the start of the Edwardian period and the main character is a working class uh, lad and he's obviously hanging around with the the characters who have real agency are mostly um, aristocracy or or uh, you know educated so politics is bound to emerge from that because um, those questions of uh, the limitations that class and wealth and everything put on people you just can't steer I'm sure there would be people who go why can't you just do a comic without that sort of thing and you think well how would I put it in Edwardian times then and um you know, it doesn't make any sense to me to do that. Uh, how can you, t- it's like saying, can't you do a novel, but without left feet in it, you know, how would you do that? But, but I think in a role-playing game, uh, politics certainly has emerged in situations, but I think, and this is a very interesting thing. If you think of the way we deal with politics normally in, in, in say novels or comic books, um, we can, or even in Can You Brexit, it's far simpler than the real question, the real question of Brexit, the massive complexity. If I, if somebody came back from 300 years in the future and, had, and started asking me about, um, you know, what's Brexit all about, there'd be so much that I'd have to unpack to explain that stuff to them. Um, and when you read, say, Isherwood, or, or just recently I was re- reading some uh Irmgard Kern, I don't know if you know her stuff. She was a, she was writing about the 30s, basically, the rise of the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, it's incredibly complicated because there are points where the communists and the Nazis are half colluding to make sure they destroy the center. And, you know, you've got, or you, you've got, if you went back and I actually addressed a Nazi on the street, He's not going to say, yes, of course, I'm, I'm waiting for the opportunity to put on a uniform of evil and, and become the bad guys of history. He actually thinks he's doing good. And, and some of the things that he's doing, you could understand the reasons for. You know, why somebody has come out of the trenches feeling that they were cheated in their, that, you know, that the, the stab in the back theory and all that kind of thing. But they've then had the the Versailles Treaty and the depression to go through. So that's what interests me because if you put something like that really messy spaghetti of of mistrust and misunderstandings and and different, uh, you know, uh, aspirations, if you put all that together in a role-playing game, the players on the ground would experience it from within. It wouldn't be a simple political analysis it would be how life is lived from inside so it, you know if if, a, if players were going to express in a historic i mean i'm not sure i'd want to 
tackle the 1930s and World War II in a game. But if I did, I don't think it would be interesting if the players all said, of course, we'll play resolutely anti-Nazi, you know, resistance people in Germany. Because I'd say, well, that's obvious, but you're not going to discover anything. I'd like to, I'd like you to play somebody who joins the Nazi party, you know, see what that feels like from inside so that, because real people did it. So they weren't all psychopaths. There, there could be an interesting moral journey to go on. Um, and if role playing is always interesting when it takes you somewhere outside your comfort zone, I think so. But I wouldn't, none of that would I force into the game. You know, I, I think the, those sort of things just have to emerge in role playing. Yeah, uh, I totally <clears throat> agree. And it's interesting you, you comment about the, um, the the extreme left and extreme right around that time uh, moving to um, subvert and destroy the centre. I, I don't know very much about it, but I have been picking up some more about it with, um, well, recently with the talking, the discussions about people calling each other Nazis and communists and using um, uh, very... Uh, Using these terms as epithets, mm-hmm. uh, I, some of the things I've, I've have emerged in you know you look more carefully into what actually happened at that time, uh, and the way that the left has not always opposed the right, mm. uh, because and, and because it's been politically expedient for them to do so, or there have been alliances uh, at stake, and so I think that the the only time the only way I would introduce politics in it is it it it's what kicks off a situation and then yeah. it's just a situ it's just a system of alliances that are in place that have trickle down effects on real people and and then the alliances are there for people to choose in play i suppose i mean i i think part of the reason why you know if i say i'm going to put people in the politics of ninth century byzantium or whatever i I wouldn't do that because I want to avoid an uncomfortable situation because if I was aiming for a political situation, discomfort is one of the main things I'd I'd hope to create. But um, it's the complexity that's hard to get, really. As I say, it's like today I was watching a video about QAnon and thinking, how would I begin to explain this to somebody (laughs) from outside our society? explaining that as a, as a political phenomenon i mean it's it's it defies analysis really um and so that's what i mean about the extreme complexity i could i could say to players it's 1932 the 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 uh, nazis i nearly said the tories for some reason I, that's some part of my brain i guess the nazis yeah. are about to come to power and you know you're You've got the uh, communists are asking you to do help them in some way, and so the players could decide what they want to do. But I'm concerned that I wouldn't get the real range of of oddness across. You know that that you, within the Nazi grouping, you'd also have nationalists who didn't like the Nazis, but they thought there are enough of the package of what the Nazis want that we want to go along with. But you'd have communists who'd say. Well, the Nazis have a program of public spending. We we really go along with that. So, I just don't think I'd, without spending a few years getting the the background right, I'm not sure if I could do it justice. Really. Whereas, if you take it into a a fantasy or historical 
setting, you can get away with only the fronts of the buildings are there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Still, I, I guess you don't want to be reductive um, because whatever happens, you want to you want to treat it like a complex situation where um, with real people who are not just you know saints or sinners. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so. It's just not necessarily being able to respond quickly. You know, if you if you um, if you look at things like the triumph of the will. Um, it's like a lot of people regarded Hitler as a kind of r radical rock star, you know, that there's almost this impression that what the Nazis are doing is somehow progressive. And that's a, th it would be difficult for, I think, for players to forget what we now know and to yeah. go into it. If a player could genuinely convince me that they believe going in to 1933 that the Nazis will bring a better future and then I could watch the horrible disillusionment as they went forward. That would be brilliant, but I think it would be very, very hard for us to do that today. Yeah, like all of these things, um, it goes back to uh, I would always be concerned about treating the subject itself with, yeah. with a degree of tact and, and you know, uh, being respectful to it. I mean, we've got, there are examples, I'm looking at some on my shelf right now, uh, of historical books. White Wolf did this um, in their Wraith line. I've got um, one for the Great War and one for um, basically the Holocaust. I've never had the nerve to, to run either of those, really. I mean, they're written fairly well. And I think they're written sensitively, or at least the one about the Holocaust is. But even so, um, I think it's interesting there on the shelf as an artifact of the hobby. Yeah, I mean, sure I, I could really do anything with it. I think I'd be happy, you know, to take on the Holocaust in a game, just as you might in a novel. But you can't, you can't make that game or that novel and not have it be about the Holocaust. You can't say it's actually about an alien invasion that happens while the Holocaust is going on. You go, no, that's ridiculous. I mean, the 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 monstrous horror is the Holocaust. It's not. It, you know, you can't go anywhere else with that story. So that's that's what would concern me. You can't. It can't be background. It can't just be color for something else. Yeah. Uh, and that is probably it's exactly um, that phrase color treating it like color is probably the um, uh, the most disrespectful thing you could do about it. I imagine. Yeah, and and I think you know there was the fuss about the follow on to Tremulous going to the Congo and everything, and I think they should have gone there, but go there with the. It's not about whether there's a Lovecraft demon in the Congo, but. Mm -hmm. You know, Heart of Darkness is, is uh, well, there's people who complain because it doesn't have enough of the black perspective. But the point is, it's quite clear that he recognized it as, as a horror. And so you could take that um, line. But what you can't do is say, the Congo is a great setting for finding a Cthulhu statuette, you know. Yeah. And under those, you know, at that time, that's the Belgian Congo can't be that. Um. I've got a couple of other questions. Uh, I wonder if I could move on from talking about dark political subjects. and Back to Brexit. Why not? <laughs> well, yeah, why not? Um, I wanted to ask you actually, though, about some of your other projects, given, mm -hmm. given that I've got you here, because I'm sure that you know, 
uh, sure the listeners might be interested in that. Um, I don't know if I, you finished, uh, you, you did some work on um, the design mechanisms Leoness book. Is that, that's right? Yeah. Uh, I didn't, I did a, not very much. I, uh, I think probably as a follow on to the Fictoplasm episode, um, they got in touch and asked if I'd do a couple of the um, world background chapters. So I did. Uh, yeah, this, this is my understanding. Yeah. The reason I'm mentioning it is because um, uh, Lawrence Whitaker was interviewed by um, by Dirk on, on his podcast uh-huh. um, not so long ago, and it was mentioned. Um, but what was the, what were the sections that you did? Um, I did the uh, the scar and uh, the city of East. Um, so kind of the two most exotic bits, I suppose. Uh, the and and the I also wrote the kind of the summary of the story. I, probably because I'd reread the books recently for the Fictoplasm episode. Yeah. So uh, uh, and that was interesting because even as I was reading them, I was thinking you could easily get everything you need to run a campaign from. Vance has packed that in, you know, he'll say things like the ports along the south uh, east uh, are too shallow, the bays are too shallow for deep hulled military vessels and things like that. You think, well, that's a, there's a little bit of war gamey stuff being just packed in there if you need it. Um, yeah. It's kind of, it's curious, but it's a beautiful book, by the way, and I recommend anybody that, that likes the setting should get it. But it's curious, those those settings attached to rules because I'm familiar with with Mithras as it's a sort of rebuild of RuneQuest, isn't it? But I haven't yeah, played so it. It comes from 6th edition, I believe. Right. But I think, you know, from being a long-time Tecumel player, Tecumel keeps having new rule systems and they've had another one in the last couple of years, I think. And I, sorry, that's called Bethorn, by the way, uh, Bethorn. Right. Um, and it's odd because I don't know these days, does anybody, if somebody wanted to come and play Leoness, a Leoness campaign, would they say, well, forget the system we normally use. I can understand doing this with a Powered by the Apocalypse game because the, 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 the first of all, because the rules don't take you very long to explain and master. And also they're very dovetailed into the particular world. I'm, I'm, the one we particularly enjoyed was the Sagas of the Icelanders, Gregor Vuga's um, thing. And it's just yes. perfect. It, having read a lot of the sagas, it's m- brilliant. But I can't imagine, say, my group who often end up playing GURPS 4th edition. And if I said, we're going to do Leoness, they'd say, using GURPS? Or is it going to be a simple system? And if I said, no, it's another system as complicated as GURPS, but a different one, they'd go, no, 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 there isn't time for us to master that. So it's odd when something like Bethorm comes out and you think, okay, they expect you to learn a whole, you know, 150-page book of rules. My interest in the setting is different from my interest in the rules, is what I'm saying, really. So I'm curious as to what that whether that how that now sells in the market i understand that it's uh, you know it's a self-contained copy of the basic role playing or, or an evolution of it and i imagine a lot of it is going to it will have a fairly um 
quick adoption because what most people who know that system will know will look for the differences and then they will assimilate those. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, they'll just work with it. Well, and also it, it probably is a lot simpler than GURPS. I mean, RuneQuest, I'm saying it's a complex system just because I'm thinking it's one of those old style heavy rule systems as opposed to the much lighter rules that we see these days. And also you can quickly, you could quickly adapt it because as I understand it, everything in Mithras, for example, is percentages. So if you say this guy's got 50% skill, that, that's fairly quick to adapt to your favorite system if you want to. Yeah. I mean, they, just on the subject of RuneQuest, I mean, I've, I've, got, I've played all the way through from the original RuneQuest 2. Uh, I haven't played RuneQuest 6, but um, it went through a period where it was, um, it was taken over by Mongoose. Hmm. And the second edition... And then subsequently, Legend and I think then RuneQuest Six. They all added combat maneuvers and various other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, I've sort of I'm in. I have very mixed opinions about those because uh, it is more effort for me to learn. Uh, and I, and I like the I like the the simplicity of Call of Cthulhu in that you're just rolling percentages. Yeah. So uh, that I can get behind. Well, but, when I I did. Um... Tirikalu, which is a set of rules for Tecamel. And uh, the players wanted a, a little bit of tactics to to combat so that it wouldn't just feel like... Because t- back in the day, rune quests could sometimes be you roll, you parry, you roll, you parry, and it just goes on and on until somebody fumbles and a bit of armor falls off or something. So I built in a, a very simple system which lets you split your melee value. You can either go all out or you in half and half on defense and parry or you can full parry and that actually led to some very interesting tactical variations even though it sounds very very simple but the main um the main point of the rules was that it couldn't get more complex than that because i'd say to people you roll the dice first and then you tell me so if you say something like i'm full attacking and you make and you get a special you'd go you could say i just i leap across the table and i just swing my foot round it catches him on the jaw and he's down you go that's up to you because you've got the dice roll but what i dislike is the uh, kind of ultra simulationist system that you get in say gurps where people say now wait a second i'm i'm jumping on the table so i'm using i'm using my you know my maneuver through objects uh, bonus uh, and then they do all that and then they say so it's now a close combat using a kick with an aim to the jaw and they do you're in a spreadsheet now so i like yeah. them to roll the dice and then say you tell me what you did if it's great give me some cinema but don't tell me in advance in tiny detail what you're trying to do let that be what the dice have told you happened um and i think that that's one of the great things that um I don't think that Apocalypse World has done anything particularly new in terms of the way that most people interpret dice rolls. That people, I think, people are very much okay with you've done really well or you've done you've succeeded, but there's a cost. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it has done really well is getting people to commit to the role, and then once 
the success is established, you know, then they think about yeah. what is the out, what is the fictional outcome. I think that's done a, a massive service to to the way that a lot of role playing is done. Definitely, yeah. Um, and also the, I was mentioning things like uh, sagas of the Icelanders, the the way that you can tune the rules, the focus of the rules, so that you find that the stories you get. I mean, I wouldn't want this for every setting because a setting like Tecumel, for example, is is meant to be a realistic universe. It's not a story universe. So what although it's fantasy, you know, what happens there is like here. If I I if I jump between two buildings, I might make it or I might fall to my doom, but it has nothing to do with whether it my character arc enables me to do it. It's just a universe. Um but the powered by the apocalypse worlds tend to be story but like the sagas, they're trying to make a, camp, a, a game that feels like the real sagas. And they do that fantastically well by specifically putting the focus onto the parts of the world that matter. Yeah, they have a very strong genre focus. Yeah, yeah. I think they, they do that tremendously well, or at least the best ones do. There are some stinkers. Yes. Uh, but there are some, uh, but the original one um, with Apocalypse World itself uh, and um, some of the others like Monster Hearts. Um, very, very focused on what they want to achieve. I was going to ask you about Tecumar, and I'm glad you mentioned that. Is Dragon Warriors being reworked? Well, Dragon Warriors, I'm actually working on a game called Jewel Spider, which is right. um, set in the Dragon Warriors world, but it's not really a new Dragon Warriors. I mean, if people like Dragon Warriors, they'd probably continue to play that, I guess. Mm. Um it's really uh, it's a bit of a narrower focus in that it's all in Ellis Land, which is the you know the England the Britain equivalent, mm-hmm. and it's quite folkloric. I mean, Dragon Warriors already had that, but it's if you look at, I mean, sometimes I see people playing Dragon Warriors, or they'll put you know games online, and I they're great, but that's it's the game that it was then, and it's a it's a fantasy adventure world and. That's good, but normally when I'm running it, I I tend to make it a bit more medieval and a bit grubbier, and it's not very super heroic. So I I wanted a set of rules that would be very very simple, that and effectively completely fractal in the sense that um, it has the detail you need it to have. So um, rather than having a list, you know, having to create your character with a big long list of things. Um, you have broad categories of what you can do and then you drill down as as much as you're interested in it. So let's say somebody wants to be a great swordsman, then they would have their basic ability to just hit something with a sword like anybody. And then you could take sword skill, but if somebody else says, I don't know what sword skill is, I don't have it on my sheet, you'd go, that's fine. You don't need to know because you never... You never went there. So um, it's really just a way of saying any action that a player says, I want to do X, I've got a quick way of saying, I, I know how we can resolve whether you can do that or not. And and just so putting a lot more emphasis on just uh, sitting around and playing. Having said that, we one of the play tests we did was um, Oliver Johnson put a game together and he, he made it very much a Dragon Warriors game. So there was lots of combat. And I was saying it's not really built to be a game where people get into multi, 
you know, some one group of archers versus a group of swordsmen in a warehouse. It's not supposed to be that kind of a game, really. But good, because playtesting is, you know, testing its limits. Um, so I'm kind of going back and playing around with that a bit more. But um, I have a Patreon for it, and that's to raise money to do some nice artwork. I think probably then I'll uh, maybe towards the end of the year, I'm touch wood, because I still got to get the magic system to work well. And one of the problems there is playtesting it. We have players who are really, really good at improving magic, but um, I like to let improv happen. But I think the there must be the court of appeal of the rules. I don't want it because otherwise you get favoritism could creep in. So, so I feel the rules always have to be there. So if a player says, can that actually happen? You can turn to those. Um, so I have to make those rigorous, but hopefully almost unnecessary. And if I could get that right by the end of the year, then I'll probably release it by then. I'm hoping to get Johnny Hodgson to do some pictures for awesome. it. Yeah, that'd be good. Uh, yeah. He did say Fair. a few months ago, but of course, coronavirus has happened since then. But yeah. we'll see. Uh, All right. Well, I will be sure to uh, to put a link to your Patreon in the show oh, notes. Okay. And that sounds terrific. But also, I have. Uh, yes. Sorry, I was going no, to. No, say, go ahead, please. Uh, no, just because you asked about. You know, while I was doing that, I, we were. I've also been working on a a thing called Tetsubo, which was a, a supposed to be a supplement for Games Workshop back in the day. And right. um, it was actually delivered the the same week that Paul Coburn, who'd commissioned it, left Games Workshop. So we, Jamie Thompson and I, who'd worked on it, sort of thought that might men, mean that it wouldn't happen. And indeed, a few months later, the workshop said, well, we'll just uh, treat it as a kill fee and you can have the rights back. So we did that and left it in a drawer until um, last year or end of the year before that, um, a chap called Daniel Fox got in touch who has a kind of Warhammer heartbreaker thing called the Zweihinder. Uh, and I'm aware of it. Okay. It's a huge book. I mean, I thought it's the NS book yeah. was big, but it's really big. And um, so he was talking about maybe doing that, but I think got distracted by some new publishing deal or something. Anyway, the I'd got it all out of the attic and scanned everything. And uh, so I was saying to Jamie, well, I could just toss it back in the box and we won't see it for another 20 years. Um, and then I'd been talking to a friend of mine, Paul Mason, who's Japanese now, but uh, he moved out there about 25 years ago. And he wrote a, a game, which has still not, I think, been officially published, but it's done the rounds called Outlaws. You know, it's a, the story of the water margin. And... Uh, right. And he said, well, you could use that as the system for uh, for Tetsubo. So and it was partly that that's quite attractive because I had run uh, a campaign in, in Heian, Japan, about 30 years ago. And I'd used the early Outlaws rules for that. And although Tetsubo is set a bit later, it's more like the Sengoku period, um, I thought, okay, I know that, I know how the rules work. And most importantly, Paul lives in Japan and can tell me all the Japanese stuff. And actually, most of it has been modern Japan is really as different from Sengoku Japan as Britain is. So 
he's he doesn't have an answer to most things but um or only that nobody really knows um but that's fine too it, it means that uh, i've got somebody to at least check my japanese is right um and so i've kind of been working on that as well to just really so it it isn't completely wasted i I don't know. It's yeah. it's a strange thing, though, because it's still got, and I assume some of the people who are waiting for it wanted the, the Warhammer supplement. But there are bits in there. I think Jamie probably approached this with more enthusiasm than I did, but stuff involving chaos, which, I mean, other than clearly, if we're talking about Moorcock's approach to chaos, I'm I'm completely there. But this doesn't seem to be that. It just seems to be... I I don't know. Anyway, but it's and it's a terrible fit with all the Japanese folklore, which is the stuff that interests yeah. me. But I kind of thought, well, I'll leave it because people who like it will keep it, and the people like me will just ignore it, and it will never show up in the game. So it it, it is slightly strange because Paul said to me, "You were always going to write a game called Kwaidan, which was going to be the Heian Japan." very spooky strange ghost story you know but like a mm. bit like the movie or uh get some monogataro if you've seen that so it's all that kind of a feel and yeah. i used to be very into things like um uh, tale of genji and the pillar book of seishonagon and all that so it was going to be that period no no samurai or anything in there and he said why aren't you writing that one because that's the one you really like and i well tetsubo is the one people are have been waiting 20 something years for. So I feel I should at least do that first. And having finished that, then I can always do quite down at some later date, perhaps. That sounds marvelous. So Tetsubo, I assume that that's, you know, the, it's Warhammer the in, chosen to, exactly. It's yeah. a, it's a, a club. I can't remember which particular club it is. Well, it just means iron, iron, iron staff, basically, or iron flail. Yeah. It, it is that that massive. I think it's a two-handed thing with this yeah studs all over it, iron shod thing. Yeah, yeah. marvelous. I mean, it does sound. Uh, if it was planned at that time, it the relationship between that and Warhammer sounds like an, an awful lot about like the relationship between RuneQuest Lander Ninja and the um, RuneQuest Three. Uh, Lander mm. Ninja is also, I think, is a spectacular book. Uh, I think that's, that sounds terrific. There are no ninja in it, I have to say. Jamie will be really annoyed, but um, uh-huh. Paul said uh, nobody would have used the term ninja then. And so they, there are, you know, there are some things that people might say, oh, that's like a ninja, but they're much more um, magical and weird. You know, they'll, they learn magic from frog spirits and stuff like that. It's not, it's not guys in pajamas uh-huh. creeping around. You know, doing well. I, I must say that I mean the Land of Ninja. I think they chose that title. The yeah. Ninja are by far the least interesting part of it. <laughs> I mean, what's it is all the uh, the Japanese folklore, which which I don't have much of a grounding on, so I can't really comment about its authenticity. Well, there's a massive That's amount, it. and of course, it's yeah. it's very hard, even for Paul, who who, as I say, li- has lived there for thirty years. It's hard for him to, to you know, I'll say things like. Uh, if you have uh, people being reincarnated, what goes to Yomi, the land of roots? And the book. Eventually, I just accepted that the rules are going to contradict themselves. It's uh, you'll 
you know, like real folklore. You go, yes, well, this and this can't both coexist. Well, fine, pick pick what you like. <laughs> so, yeah, that that's <laughs> and it's also fun because at the time, Jamie and I went and got lots and lots of um, Japanese legend books. Some of them almost as big as the Zweihänder Handbook. It must be said, and they're all in public domain now. So, and I've been able to find online versions. So I'm able to take fairly extensive chunks from some of those books and, and put them in there as color. To So even if people don't want to play the game, if they if they belong to that group of people who, as I say, God bless them, will buy the book and put it on a shelf and never open it. Well, hopefully they'll open it. But if they never play it, they can read just the little box outs and get a great tour through um, a, a really interesting uh, period of folklore and uh, and myth. And after that, because you mentioned we mentioned Turikalu, see, I've decided to stack up a bunch of role playing things now. But yeah, pretty good. Well, I because I spoke to the the Tecumel Foundation that now have the rights to all of Professor Barker's stuff, and um, they don't like uh, unofficial rules being printed, but they're fine with them being available online. So that's great. And. So they've let me do that. But I thought, I want to do something with it that I can control as well as just leaving it there as a fan thing. So um, when we were at IDOS, Jamie and I were working on a massively multiplayer online game called Abraxas, which was going to be a kind of lost continent thing, a little bit Clark Ashton Smith, probably with you know a dash of more cocky and stuff built in later. And we developed... Uh, a lot of concept art and maps and things for it. And it was early days. I think we're talking about 1998 or something. And people didn't really believe that massively multiplayer online games would ever be a worthwhile thing. And IDOS were very concerned that it might cost over a million pounds to develop. (laughs) I'm sure that, you know, Warcraft costs a lot more than that. But anyway, so we developed that world and, um, and it's a science fantasy world that sort of fits in the same ballpark as Tirikelu, so as, as Tecumel. So I thought, well, I could do a kind of a new version of the Tirikelu rules and have my own world. And that would be a book just to have, you know, to do something with it anyway, to put it out there. And also I've got, uh, I did a lot of work on um, Sparta because we were playing a campaign uh, in ancient Greece and so I thought uh, the great thing about Sparta is how little is known, which does give you lots of gaps to fill in. And um, so I, I, I ended up reconstructing uh, a map of Sparta of the of the original town um, based on maps that were probably, you know, it was already eight hundred years after Sparta's decline anyway. But um, I thought, well, that would be a a fun little a little role playing game to do, but I haven't really decided what uh, system to use for that. But it's and I'm probably going to just call it Lambda because just because it will be cool to have the Lambda design, you know. <laughs> um, so they're very much one for the aficionados, but that's kind of Excellent. on the list. Oh, fantastic! So, Dave, you just. Yeah. Uh, listed a whole load of games that uh, you talked about. Um, is your Patreon the best place for people to uh, go and look for that and learn more? Um, yeah, I mean, I Patreon's the Patreon's just doing the uh, 
the jewel spider stuff. So I guess when jewel spider right. actually comes out, I'll probably close. That. I, I always right from the start. I I don't. I said I don't think Patreon should work on a project basis. I think it should work on a creator basis because. Uh, it like take somebody like James Wallace. If he had a Patreon, I'd back whatever he wants. I want him to do what he wants to do. I don't want him to do what some publisher tells him to do. So I don't want him to have to find a project that sounds commercial. I want him to just say, I'm not even going to tell you what I'm doing, but when it comes out, you'll get a copy. Okay, that's that's fantastic. I would back that. And I would do the same for Gregor Vuga. Whatever he does, it doesn't have to be Icelanders, but I liked Icelanders enough that I'd do his... His next thing, or Jana Pedersen did the, you know, the uh, Chernobyl Mon Amour, whatever he wants to do uh-huh. next, I'd back that. So that's how I think Patreon ought to work. But um, I think the only way to to tackle it, given that it's set up as a Jewel Spider thing, is to say when Jewel Spider's ready, okay, I'm going to end this Patreon, but I'll start another one, or everybody unsubscribe and resubscribe if you want to for. Abraxas or or Sparta or whatever the next thing after that is, but um, I guess there were. I don't think there'll be a lot of overlap. You know, people who want Jewel Spider are probably almost all Dragon Warriors people, and very few of them will necessarily be at all interested in right. Tiri Kalu. Anyway, so that's probably if they want to hear the bigger picture stuff. I guess the best place to go is the Fabled Lands blog because I. I have to fill that with something every week. So I'll end up just talking about whatever I've just been doing. So they will definitely get advance notice of all of those projects at some point. Oh, fantastic. Dave, is there anything else that you want to cover? I'd say only there's, there's Mirabilis. So if anybody was interested in comics and would like to have a look at Mirabilis-yearofwonders.com, uh, most of the issues are actually online for free. So anyone would like to go and have a look that's my that's my real labor of love so i always try to get steer people that way so Um, who's the artist for that by the way uh leo hartas fantastic and the coloring is nikos kutsis and actually that's really quite important because leo's stuff is obviously beautiful but it's it's very very different before nikos puts his colors on and the two they're really co-artists in that sense on it uh I think oh. it, it looks beautiful. Very, I I, lo- I find that because uh, I tend to do the the word balloons, and so I'll will sit doing the lettering, and uh, I just find it endlessly charming to be with those characters. The way they illustrate, you know, it really creates a marvelous world, um, which is kind of nice because I can be thinking about story. The trouble is, it costs too much, and there's I can't I haven't found a way to do it commercially, so. Um, I don't know how I'll continue it. I've got the whole story planned, but art is expensive. So yes, and and for good reason. Yeah, yeah, it's very. I know. I'd say to to Leo, um, here's the scripts, and admittedly, I I do all the layouts and then draw them carefully to show him the composition of every frame and everything. But even so, it's taking him twice as long to do a page as it's taking me to to write and and thumbnail it um so i can steam ahead and occasionally i thought i could just write it as a novel but the trouble is i really see it as a comic book and once you've got that vision you know it depends on the visuals so much but i don't know you know it could be a lottery win next week and I'll, then i'll do it we'll see all right well fingers crossed eh? yeah <laughs> 
Dave, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. I'll be sure to put all those links in the show notes for the listeners. Great. Thanks, Ralph. See you around. Yes. Thanks a lot. Stay safe. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. Okay. Thanks for listening. As always, if you enjoyed this, then please like, share, and subscribe. And the music is by Chris Zabreski. Find out more at chrissabreski.com. See you later. <laughs>